how I always planned my own travels, even as a backpacker, was where was the be world's best kebab? I gotta go there. The Unearth Women podcast celebrates travel through the stories of women. Ronnie Chima is founder of Chima's Travel, where she crafts bespoke adventures centered on food that connect her clients to flavors through travel around the globe. Nikki Vargas, editor of Unearth Women, caught up with Ronnie on Instagram Live for the Unearth Women at Home series. On today's episode, they discuss building her company from the ground up, advice for those looking to build their own travel company, the new endeavors that have arisen from the pandemic, and her personal education journey in race and prejudice. I am in the exotic land of Oakland, California, and <laughs> my partner and I were actually supposed to go back to New York. So I'm originally from New York um, and see family, friends back in March, and then ta-da! So um, we've been here ever since, and this is probably the first time in like the three years I've been in California that I'm thankful that I am in California, sunny California, <laughs> especially during this. Mm Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I had even started a spreadsheet in the very beginning of this because I thought it'd be fun. Oh, we're in a quarantine. It's no, I stopped it and I actually had deleted it after two months. And on that list were uh, like, of course, baking things. So everyone did the sourdough. I did a really great job and I'm really proud of myself, but I'm like, I can't feed this thing every day. I can barely take care of myself sometimes. And then I got, I have like the few clients that I have right now during the pandemic and I have to feed this starter. No, thank you. I even somehow like pulled a muscle while kneading and I'm like, I need to work out. So that was one of the things <laughs> that I knew I needed to do was to get jacked so that I can make sourdough bread. And then, <laughs> um, and there have been interesting things that had popped up that I didn't realize that were a thing or that I would actually enjoy. So gardening was one of them. Um, we have a, a lemon tree, a Meyer lemon tree that just keeps giving and it's supposed to have stopped like two months ago. So, uh, we've, uh, I've been making lemon bars, lemon desserts. My boyfriend's making lemon cocktails. I started gardening everything. Nothing grew at all. And I was like, screw this. I'm going to go to the plant store and just get the actual plant that's already <laughs> ready. And now it's flourishing. Um, I tell them I love them. I want them to grow. Yeah. I pet them. Yeah. And um, th 
through this, I'm no longer afraid of like bees and spiders. That was like a big thing of me. And now there's like a hornet that like swirls my head while I'm watering everything. And I'm fine. I feel like mother nature, like the city girl who like couldn't go to summer camp because her allergies would kick up all the time. Um, and now I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm gardening and I got a sun hat. It's amazing. Yeah. I was gonna say, cause it's Yes. So a uh, culinary travel specialist is just um, actually a title that I had made up for myself. Um, I know there are people who focus on food and wine tours, but um, culinary just encompasses everything. And I'm obsessed with food. So if I can combine my, tr my passion for travel and then helping a client find the best of something, then that excites me and sometimes and everyone has their own style of traveling and it's all welcome it's all appreciated but i can't do um i don't get excited about like disney vacations for families um and they just want to stay in one hotel i like to i like clients and travelers who like to explore and fill their time between eating with other things. Like, oh, oh my God, I just had this incredible pizza in Rome. Ugh, what do I do now till like snack time? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so 
I want to start off with saying that actually this is in reference to what you were just talking about. How I always planned my own travels, even as a backpacker, was to find out that the world's best kebab, and I talked about this in the storytelling um, with caveat, where was the world's best kebab? I got to go there. And I'd show up, <laughs> have nothing else to do except eat this kebab. And that that's how I always planned my travels. And I would have clients that would do that also. They were like, oh, I heard that there was this great restaurant, or I've always wanted to take this cooking class and do this. But I don't just focus on that cooking class or that one particular thing. I do my best to have really build out a well-rounded custom itinerary for this person because I've had people who wanted me to plan their honeymoon and they want to eat at all these restaurants and all of a sudden they're just like oh I heard this cooking class was really good maybe we can do this but in the month of planning you've never mentioned a cooking class once who told you you need to do this cooking class (laughs) and they said the internet or my friend and I'm like no no Do you genuinely want to do that? Do you want to cook with your brand new husband and have this meal and then cook that meal? And she's like, no, I don't want to cook anything. I'm like, done. So that's the thing. I take the cue from the individual clients. Now with the small group trips, oh, because I don't get to, I get chills when I even think about my own own group trips. (sighs) Take a moment. It's because there are destinations that people don't realize that they want to go to. So if I create, and there are destinations that I'll learn about, and how come no one's requesting South Korea? How come no one's requesting Punjab, India? That's where all the Indian food you eat in America comes from. And why is that? And it's because... um, People just don't, they, and it's okay. They feel like they have to do the beginner, the 101, um, and go to Italy. Italy's epic, so Italy's always the example. But they always want to do Venice, Florence, Rome, like over and over again. But there's so much more to Italy. Like there's so much more to India. And there's so much more to Korea than Seoul. So with the India itinerary, for example, it was... In all honesty, it's my dream itinerary and then what I know you as a travel nerd, as a food nerd, you're going to want to experience. And also to create that safe space too because if you're a foodie and you want to eat everything in India, (laughs) that's really tricky even for like my dad who's Indian and his digestive system worked itself out, you know, and he gets sick. So I really wanted to do that. Um, And then with Unearth Women, I really wanted that trip. Um, And it made complete and total sense for it to be um, for self-identifying females because India is not that safe of a place for women to travel through, especially alone. Mm hmm.
I love that. Because I always encourage people to, to join the industry if we've even had a call and they want me to plan their trip and I'm just listening to them. And then they ask me, how do you do this? Why do you do this? And I'm like, oh, you want in and you need to get in because this is an amazing career if you truly desire to make people happy. And it's always been like that for me. I always wanted to help people experience something that, how do I say this? It's like just to open their eyes see new perspectives. And even if it's just a conversation I'm having with someone that isn't even about travel, I like look forward to that. It's not always unsolicited. <laughs> Sometimes it is, and I'll warn people, hey, I'm about to give you some unsolicited advice. Um, but how this started was because I started backpacking and, um, oh my God, I was addicted the first Within the first few months of me traveling, I had gone to Turkey. And whose first country is Turkey? Like, my first country was Turkey. Then it was Italy, because uh, my best friend had lived there for a year. She always talked about Florence. Um, so I really wanted to experience that, to connect better with her. And then it was Spain. Then I came home and then went to India for the first time in 2009. Um, and with my dad and my grandmother hadn't seen me since 1984, 85. Um, so while I was doing that, hopping around meeting people in, uh, in hostels and cafes, they would always be fascinated with the fact that I was from New York. And they always said that they wish they had lived in New York, but it's too expensive. Oh no, that they're lucky. I, I should be lucky that I live in New York, that they're envious because New York is too expensive to visit. And my mind was blown because I'm like, are you kidding me? New York could be so affordable if you come in the summer, if you do this, da 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 And then you always have a place to stay with me. <laughs> like I had a place. Um, and then it was Chima's NYC. So then I started developing this uh, Facebook page, then it turned into a blog where I wanted people to know that travel to and within New York, specifically the city, was accessible and it wasn't as expensive or complicated. So it was all about free, cheap, and local NYC. And then it evolved to there to be a web series that with a bunch of freelancers who eventually got full-time jobs. So that was... That went away. And I'm like, ah, I got to edit and film and do everything myself. So it didn't work out. But um, then I met someone whose best friend was a luxury travel consultant. This is also the very short story of this. By the way, if you want the long story, one day. <laughs> yes, please. Yes.
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, which is interesting. And I can, I'll totally come back to this too, but I was watching um, Padma Lashki's uh, Taste the Nation. And oh my God, I was so like triggered by the Jackson Heights episode because... Yes. Oh, that was so good too. <laughs> um, and I felt very triggered in the sense that Padma and is it DJ uh, DJ with an R uh, DJ R who who does the uh, Bangra dance parties? Um, they were talking about how Jackson Heights feels like home to them. Every time they come back, no matter where they go in the world, it feels like home to them. And Jackson Heights never felt like home to me. And watching that and then going on Cherry Bombs, um, they have a, a road trip uh, uh, chat with, the, with some um, Indian chefs and Indian American chefs and also the filmmakers for the show. And just hearing them talk and kind of working this out. And this is something else I've been doing during the pandemic is digging deep into uh, all of my bullshit from my past and from my childhood, basically, because there's a lot there. And how I never felt like I belonged anywhere because um, I'm half Puerto Rican and half Punjabi Indian. And my mom and the family came from Puerto Rico when she was like three years old. And they moved to Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, there were like four Puerto Ricans in the whole borough. And then it was just Italians and Irish. So my family's really light skin. My mom basically grew and her siblings grew up with being around Italians and Irish Um and then my dad, uh, he never, I didn't have Indian food till I was 17. He assumed I wouldn't like it. And he had lived in Greece for six years. So he cooked Greek food and he spoke Greek. And we would always go to Astoria constantly because he would talk to people there and practice his Greek. And I thought the Greek food I was eating was Indian. And that the language my dad was speaking was also like Indian, not specifically Punjabi, but that. And for me to go to Jackson Heights, I totally feel out of place. I totally feel like I don't belong. And watching that episode and kind of like with most YouTube videos too about eating, uh, was it the like food tours in certain cities? I like watching those because they'll talk about a certain food or ingredient and I'll know what it is. I have food allergies, so it's really tricky. And um, I'll learn about it. And watching this episode, I learned more about sweets than I have in my entire life. So it was crazy. Yeah.
<lacht> ja. Yeah. And what I'm Oh yeah, wait. I I was actually cuz I saw I saw Chef Esther Choi jump in here. Um we worked we uh are doing a, a trip to South Korea and everyone half of the people who are going on the trip are Korean adoptees who are looking to connect with their roots because they've gone to Korea. And they felt lost. They felt confused. They didn't speak the language. And people, they felt judged for not speaking the language because they looked Korean. So what I'm looking to do now after this experience too, and my own experiences, is to help people bridge that um, disconnect. You know, that gap that they're feeling that, oh, I look this way. Uh, my dad or my mom is this um, ethnicity but I feel so disconnected, I want to go back. So that's something else I'm exploring too. And this goes back to Chima's travel and how it, how it all kind of evolved. Um, I met a, a travel, a luxury travel agent who I was like a travel agent. Those, those are relevant. Like I had never, I planned all my own stuff. You have the internet, um, but it's a whole other level of service. And it's, incredible because we have the ability to unlock certain doors and keys. You want to go to the Vatican when no one's there. You want to go to Angkor Wat while it's closed. Like it was incredible. So I was like swept away completely. But then I came back to my uh, travel routes, this like backpacking thing. And what I noticed the people who were attracted to me were those who were backpackers who um, were like in their 30s, they're over backpacking, they want to have these adventures, but they also want to go back to their uh, five-star hotel with a plunge pool. Like, and I was like, okay, good. Like, it's finding my way. And it just kept evolving. And then eventually, um, I did get to the place of um, uh, the group trips. And again, that was because no one was talking about these places or requesting them and again I got sick of Venice Florence Rome and Disney it did not feel fulfilling whatsoever and with these trips uh <laughs> it was hard because the way I designed uh, like all of them is this is what you're gonna do you're gonna have to trust me because I'm a legit expert and I wasn't designing I haven't been designing the itineraries to sell I've been designing them, telling you this is what you want and you never realized it before. And a lot of them are really immersive and bring you deep. Because for example, with Seoul, I constantly hear people tell me, oh, I love Korea, I love Korea. I mean, I was only there for three days because it was a layover to Japan. And I'm like, ah, 
<laughs> guys, that's that is ninety eight percent of the people I talk to. Then there is a two percent who took maybe four days and they left Seoul. So, um, and that's that's it. I just want to show people too that even if you're like afraid, I know that there are some people who are just afraid to go to destinations. Like I had Iran, and. The more I did research on Iran, especially with women, I'm not going to get too into it. I'm actually not going to get into it. But there are two different like sort of political systems or governments. And the government um, seems, and everyone's more than welcome to correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the government is more uh, um, forward thinking than the religious government or something like that. Um, and I wanted, and that was also for all self-identifying females. And that was because, uh, the itinerary I was creating for a mixed group didn't work. Yeah. And everyone's going to have a different experience. So, and I didn't want that. So, um, the end. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, this is the thing that worked for me was to uh, network. Oh, we can't do that now. Network, but uh, it's working. Um, For me, it was going to the Young Travel Professionals, which is now called Next Gen Travel. um, And meeting people there because in that space, there we go. In that space, you hear things, you listen to things, things people are saying, and some of it resonates with you, some of it doesn't. There are things you can try, things that won't work, but it's really listening to all these little bits and figuring out what works for you. At first, I thought it was being a hotel concierge in a New York City hotel because I'm so obsessed with my city And I knew it better than I knew myself. (laughs) And that wasn't it. And just having more conversations led me to this place. And then in all honesty, it was training programs. So originally I was trained with, um, well, now it's actually just like one big old family. Let's just say travel leaders. It was under pro travel. And I did a training program there. And I hopped around from different agents as a junior agent to see what worked for me. And some people did me the favor of letting me go. I had never been fired in my entire life. (laughs) And there were agents like, this isn't working. Like, this isn't working. How about you try this? And eventually it led me to a place where I'm like, I know what I'm doing. And for some people, I was too ambitious one person who interviewed me said, oh, Ronnie's really great. She's too ambitious. She has too many ideas. And um, 
that's fine because a lot of the agents are um they've been doing it for a really long time and they're set in their ways so i can't blame them but at just at some point i was like yeah no i gotta do this on my own i know what i'm doing and stop being such a baby about it and stop being so afraid so um that's that's the advice it really is not being afraid I have definitely been impacted. The entire travel industry is really struggling. And what I've done, and in all honesty, this also came from other uh, travel agents too. We sort of sat back because the, the shit really hit the fan for us in January, like early January. We knew everything was going to come crashing down before everybody else kind of knew just because we're really deep in the loop. And what happened for me was this calm that actually came over me. And really quickly, this acceptance... Well, that's a lie. It didn't come really quickly. I say it came really quickly, but then weeks later, I started crying about my business. So maybe it was like, what is it, the 12 steps of grief or something? I think that's what I was experiencing because it was a roller coaster. But there was this um, calm that came over me and this acceptance that um, I won't be able to do small group trips anymore for at least a couple of months, maybe six months. And I had to cancel uh, two spring trips. And then I postponed Korea because those travelers are the most passionate. And they really were like, why not? I mean, why can't we go? Korea sounds like they're doing really great right now. And I'm like, guys, I'm responsible for your life. So we can't do that right now. So that was postponed. But then as time went on, as you know, we had to cancel India too because um, they do not have it under control and the um, government's not allowing anybody to come in. So I had to sit back and really think about it. And I'm like, all right, well, maybe I could just like organize my my computer, go through my emails. I was at like close to a thousand. Now I'm at 150, you know, doing all these things. Um, but then I had to really think about, well, actually when the um uh this uprising happened with black lives matter george floyd all of that i felt bad in the sense that i couldn't contribute how i want to contribute because the whole purpose and reason for chima's travel 
honestly was so that I can give back to the world. And this pandemic helped me remember that because I kept thinking about the my ultimate goal, that really big goal. And I kept staying there. And I wasn't thinking about the small little goals and the milestones to get there. And during this time, I've been able to do that. And what I was like, all right, I need to go back to that, like those roots. How can I help people when no one is traveling? Which also isn't completely true. People are are traveling. Um, I have very mixed feelings about that. Um, but one of them was, okay, well, I had to cancel the trips. Korea's fine so far. We'll we'll figure that out August August 15th. <laughs> but I thought, okay, people are still willing to travel. So I know that there are a lot of people who are struggling. My partner is still working. We're doing really well for what's going on. How can I help other people? So now whatever leads I'm getting, I'm actually passing them on to a single parent who is like travels their sole income. And I've reached out to a lot of agents. Um, some of them thought I was scamming them. And <laughs> people don't believe that people actually give a shit about people sometimes. Um, and so I have a small list that I'm passing them on to. Then I know people who um, uh, just have that time. So I'm passing on some clients. I'm also creating itineraries on my website for those who, or even taking my group itineraries and changing them for a solo traveler or like couples or families. And then we can, they can like buy that and then we can customize it for them. So it depends on whatever hotels that they actually want to stay at. Um, and then the last thing was my travel bodega. So dirt. Yes. So I have a travel shop. <laughs> I have a travel shop that, um, is because the whole idea of a bodega is you can get anything, <laughs> anything at any time and it's convenient. And during this time, um, I learned that my grandfather had owned a bo two bodegas and like a children's store in Clinton Hill. And uh, again, going deep, my dad starting his own business, my uh, grandfather starting his own business, my mom started her own business, like all this. And I was like, I need to have this travel store because everyone keeps asking me, what do I travel with? How do I pack? What's the best this and this and that? And I have a half-ass spreadsheet that I'm like, I'm going to share with everyone and I never do. So the travel store is my spreadsheet <laughs> of all the things that um, I personally use. So it was really built with integrity because I've seen other travel stores that I'm checking out and they have everything and anything, all different kinds of suitcases. And I'm just like, I have one suitcase that I hated and then I grew to love it. And it was the away bag. I, I hated it in the beginning. And then I was like forced to use, I air quote a lot. I was forced to use it a lot more. And I'm like, oh my God. I love this bag. So those, so that's what the travel store is about. And whatever commissions I get from it, 15% 
go to, um, at least for the summer, because the store needs to get um, some uh, viewers and shoppers. For the first uh, three months of it, 15% um, of the commission that I receive goes to Black Lives Matter. So then that was me being able to find a way to still help others when I'm not working or I'm not getting um, the the travelers or the fact that I had to cancel my group tours. So <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> Um, I will say I am very thankful to my coaches <laughs> during this time, <sighs> girl, they have helped me realize so much or the more, you know, the more questions you have, the more conversations you have, the more you learn. And it honestly, it started with Allison Roman and same. Yeah. Ah, yeah. So it started with Allison Roman for me, and I, there, you know, there's just certain people in the the world that you feel a certain way about, and you don't know why. Like you think it's maybe your own bullshit. There's something wrong with you. Uh, why do I have these feelings about this person? But what I realized was. Cause I, okay, okay, <laughs> are you ready for this? Um, it, it's all about appropriation. I never fully understood or accepted appropriation when it came to food, because in my mind, all food all around is appropriated because of, you know, the movement and of, of uh, people and the world and just all this stuff. And then I kept hearing about I knew what she had said about Christy Teigen and Marie Kondo. And I was like, at first I'm like, oh, I don't think it has anything to do with that. They're, with the fact that they're Asian. I think that was maybe just a coincidence, but maybe she was just being like a dick about it. And then, yeah, exactly. Because then I'm like, oh, okay, no. And then, <laughs> okay, wait, hold on. Okay, and then I heard about the stew. Hashtag the stew. And I'm like, I keep hearing about this fucking stew. What is this stew? And I looked at it and I was like, oh, okay. It's a chickpea stew. 
I get it. And then I read an article, a thousand articles, from, but one from specifically somebody who said, the stew is a curry. And oh, I'm getting chills and I'm getting emotional right now. It's a curry. She never talks about it being a curry. She never talks about Indian culture. I didn't know about it either. I was like, why are people so pissed about the stew? Why are people, and I was getting angry. Guys, fucking relax. I'm sorry, yeah, I, cur- I curse a lot. I know you're like, <laughs> um, I don't understand why everyone's so angry. And then just a simple article had said, it's Indian, it's a curry, and she's calling it a stew, and she's removing any attachment to the Indian culture. And I was like, oh my God. And then that's when me, I'm like, how the hell did I not know it was a curry? But I think tzatziki sauce is Indian because of the way I was raised. Yeah. So it just kept going like deeper and deeper and I kept learning more and more and more about it. So it really started with that. And I loved that this had happened and more conversations were happening because there was some part of her that deep down inside didn't realize that she was racist or she was part of that system and how she actually has benefited um, and, and all this stuff. So then I started looking at myself and I was like, oh, I called myself a racist, but a friend of mine corrected me. It's like, no, you're prejudiced because and I'm still learning. Guys, we're all learning here. And that friend is right there. Lennon Gonzalez, full circle. <laughs> he we're all learning.
Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because the thing is, it's people are so quick to get very angry at somebody um, and cancel them. <laughs> um, and it's not about canceling the person. It's asking, well, why do you think this is this way? Why do you think you think this way? Why did you do da, 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 da? There's always a root. There's always a root to something or multiple roots spread out. And you, when we have these conversations, you're navigating that. Or even when you do this work with like coaches, oh my God, anyone listening or watching, if you can get a coach, uh, they're amazing because they help you work through all this stuff without you just like breaking down and falling apart. Because I know that I would have done that. I mean, I have done that, but with the tools I've been given just to sort of bring myself back. But um, there's... Something that I, a group called Ethel's Club, have you heard of them? Eth, Ethel's Club is a, um, a, a club for um, young professionals or just professionals. I'm really going to mess this up and they're going to be like, excuse me. Um, Ethel's Club is all about a community for those who are um, people of color, black, queer, um, trans, uh, for us to have a, a safe space to talk and network and collaborate with. And yesterday they had something, um, a workshop on anti-blackness, healing anti-blackness. And they put us in, uh, the person put us up in uh, breakout rooms and there was uh, an Asian girl I think she's I think she's Korean um a uh white Latina and then me and we were all hoping for a black person to be in our group so we can talk about it and what came up for us was colorism that when when they ask what is blackness to you what is anti-blackness for me it's just colorism because without maybe my parents knowing or my dad knowing he'd call me his white baby I'm the lightest of all of my siblings but he didn't mean it from a, yeah, and, and this keeps happening too. I keep having these conversations with, cause there was the, the, um, oh, Angela, oh, I shouldn't have said her name. Doesn't matter. It happened. There's like a thousand Angelas. <laughs> there's a, there's like a bajillion Angelas out there. It's fine. But they said that them and their cousin were the lightest in their family and that they were always, uh, Oh, congratulations. Like, look at you. Um, but there's also this part of me, and I've had, I've had these conversations with my partner who's white. He's a white straight man. Um, and I've, I'm realizing that there is also like safe brown people. Yeah, like I'm a safe brown person. My hair is straight. My skin is light. Uh, I don't have a, I sound like this. <laughs> I sound like this. Um, and I've even been told by my family growing up, well, specifically a sister, totally calling her out, that why do you sound like a white girl? And then my grandmother would be like to her, why do you sound chumosa? Which is like someone from the street. Guys, shut up. <laughs> Mind your fucking business and let people speak how they want to speak. Yes. 
Yeah. Yes. There is, there is something interesting that um, I had this con. I, I'm always, always thanking my parents for not um, talking to me about being a woman is difficult. There's a struggle there for women, or you're a woman of color. That there was a none of that conversation, and I use and I always thank them for that. But now, literally, I'm sure everyone's experiencing this these last three months. A lot of stuff is coming up and I'm like, oh my God, my parents did that in their own way to let me know that being a woman is difficult. Like you have, it matters if you're beautiful for a job interview. Now, like who told one of my parents that? And then who told that person that? So it just goes so far back. And what I'm realizing, especially with that anti-black, healing anti-blackness, I really want to end the um, the pattern, the story, this over and over again within my family. I even when I posted that um, that uh, conversation about me being biracial, the Instagram story where I'm biracial, but I didn't know I was, <laughs> uh, but everyone else told me I was. A friend of mine reached out and she was like, "I'm so thankful you posted that because these are the things I'm feeling and." It came from my parents. So because of that, I feel like people are realizing and seeing where it's not your story. It doesn't have to be your story. It goes so far back um, from and a lot of my stuff didn't even come from my parents. It came from society telling me that I needed to be white. I needed to have blue eyes, you know, um, all this stuff. So, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm sweaty. I don't know how you feel. <laughs> <laughs> I know and I've got uh, I, I'm a little shy to pick this up I didn't realize I had Jeff Goldblum <laughs> uh, for anyone who's listening it is Jeff Goldblum at his sexiest on uh, was it Jurassic Park uh, lean back but he's in the Sahara Desert funny it's it's I know funny thing is it's it's my boyfriend's cup <laughs> I love yeah it's his it's Jeff Goldblum is the love of his life not me maybe I will put it on the store as heard on unearth women podcast <laughs> yes It, it, I, I do, I can only speak for myself because I'm not an, I'm an, I'm an expert in being brown. I'm not an expert at anything else. But what has been helping me is having, oh, the safe space 
to talk to people. Like I've never been so comfortable with just saying black and talking about people. And just the more I talk about this, the more I talk with other people, um, and the more I'm vulnerable with people who I really, really trust and having that space I've been able to say some things that I'm like, oh my God, that's horrible. Um, that's not me. That comes from someplace else. And then being able to work through that because if you're internalizing it all the time and you have no one to talk to because you're so afraid. And that's the other thing I'm noticing with, let's say, um, with Alison Roman, you know, she has a platform. So she had to speak up about her experience and what she's learning and everything. But there are some people who are too afraid. And I see that in Ethel's Club sometimes. And they'll point that out, the moderator or the host. I see you, white people. How come no one's saying anything? How come we, we want you guys to talk? This is a safe space. I think that is so important for us to have a safe space and to create that for other people to not shut them down. Because if you shut them down, you're going to get a school shooting. You're going to get the one of those, um, was it All Lives Matter people? You're going to get that because they don't have that space to talk. And I think maybe that's the biggest thing because, I, yeah, yeah, the end. <laughs> yeah. That was Nikki Vargas in conversation with Ronnie Chima, founder of Chima's Travels. This audio originally appeared as an Instagram Live and was converted and edited by me, Elise Fitzsimmons. On Earth Women is a publication founded by women for women with a mission to celebrate travel and report on women's stories. For more information, please check out the show notes. Like today's episode? Please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Thanks for listening.